0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 113. As you know, I've been following the weeks of the war, which began in October 1899 and ended in May 1902. So we are now in November 1901 with six months of the war and this podcast, Left to Run. This week, Denise Rates and his fellow Boers suddenly realise they should not be wearing British uniforms, which they donned after running out of clothing. Lord Kitchener, you see, has issued a proclamation that any Boer found clad in British uniforms would be shot out of hand as a spy. We also hear about Sarah Rahl, one of the Boer women who actively fought in the war and was eventually made a prisoner of war. Her story was captured at the time in various ways, not least by curious photographers who clustered around a railway line during her transit after being caught fighting as a commando member. Her courage and gall is legendary and has been somewhat buried over time. But first, we must join Leon Smuts and his commando, which is still in the Karoo region of South Africa in the Cape Colony. D'Anais rates is one of his scouts riding with the Rake section and they're facing tens of thousands of British troops ranged in columns, hunting them down. Around this time, mid-November, the Rake section is riding point for the commando and they arrive at the small town of Hobsonville, which is being defended by a unit of around a dozen British soldiers. After a short, sharp skirmish, the British soldiers retreat but manage to shoot one of the Rake section bouvet in the thigh. He's the commander of that section, but it's not a life-threatening wound. There were two well-stocked shops and a quantity of military stores, so he did quite well out of the place and spent the night feasting on tinned food and other luxuries, says rates. Close to Hobsonville lies the town of Aberdeen, named after the Scottish city and established in 1856. There's a close link between Scotland and South Africa at this time because many Scots priests were sent to the country by various missionary societies and the Reverend Andrew Murray was a minister at Graf Renet. His birthplace was Aberdeen, thus the name. This little town lies 20 miles or so from Graf Renet, where the British had set up a large military base. So Smuts took a bit of a chance hanging around there eating bully beef. Still, they were off again early the next morning and spotted Aberdeen shortly afterwards before crossing the Port elizabeth Renet railway line. Which we crossed at night, writes rates an armoured train sending a few shells to speed us on our way. Even in the middle of the semi-desert, where everything is isolated, the British are steaming along in the armoured trains, determined to root out and crush these last die-hard Boers, fighting to the bitter end. British forces stationed at Aberdeen were on alert. Smuts kept them under scrutiny, trying to decide what course of action to take next. They were not yet ready, but by the activity in their lines, we knew that they would soon be after us, especially as their patrols kept hanging about in the offing most of the day. This part of the Karoo in South Africa is particularly beautiful, with the Kambadu Mountains, a picturesque backdrop, and the distant horizon bent with the curvature of the earth the plains are so flat. Smuts decided that the mountains were preferable to this infinite plain and ordered his commander to mount up and head north towards the Cumbadoo around 15 miles away. But they were not alone. A large English column had moved out of Aberdeen and was tracking the commander as they arrived at the foothills of the Cumbadu the next morning. Small groups of English had broken away from the main column and were tracking around trying to outflank Smuts. He was aware of the attempts to encircle him, but had no wish to take on such a large group of British soldiers. So we started up the mountain by a gorge, and at sunset reached a high saddle over which we passed. That's where the pleasant late spring ride was rudely interrupted by a change in the weather. As they climbed the mountainside, the clouds began to roll overhead, and the wind gathered strength. By the time they reached the summit, icy torrents of rain were falling and there was no hope of lighting a fire. As the dawn broke the next day, it revealed that three of the commando members were suffering from exposure. They were so cold they could not ride or even walk and were carried down to a valley where fires were eventually lit. Meanwhile, the pickets who had been left behind arrived to warn that the British were now climbing the mountain and it was time to move once more. They quickly moved off, and a little while later came across a small farm where they slaughtered a number of sheep. The owner, though, didn't seem to mind, and showed them a hidden trail where they could descend from the cumbadoo. It was there they ran into a natural impediment that was not indigenous. It was cacti, or cactus. Brought from Mesa, America by colonists, it had taken to the deserts of South Africa like no other, and some grew to over 20 feet high. There was literally a forest of these invasive species covering the area around the foot of the mountainside, taking advantage of the increased water runoff to become what rates called a vile growth. They have a great fruit eaten in South Africa called prickly pear, but at that time the Boers were faced by what looked like a barrier of thorns, and it took some neat riding to avoid being skewered in this forest of cacti. The next day they reached the Karecha River, which rises in the Kumbadu and appeared to have lost the English column. It was here that the guardian angels that appeared to protect Reitz wove their magic once more as Smuts ordered him to head over the Kirikha River and to climb a rise in order to keep an eye on their rear heading back towards Aberdeen just in case the British made an appearance. I asked my uncle to look after my riding mule during my absence and that was the last I ever saw either of them. Reitz kept watch. Hours passed and eventually... As the sun began to sink, he made his way back to the commander, stopping at a farmhouse to see if he could get a cup of coffee. That was not the wisest decision of the young man's life. The old lady inside was eager to grant my wish, but as the kettle was not boiling, she asked me to sit down while she piled more wood on the fire. Rates then hesitated and thought better of it and decided to leave. As he mounted his Arab pony, he heard a clattering of hooves, and lo and behold, it was a swarm of English troopers galloping into the glade. Had I still been seated there, I should have been caught in full khaki, and that would have been the end of me, says Reitz. But he was in the open, and instead of galloping, he admits to the fact that he was wearing a British uniform, and that saved him. So he rode his horse slowly, which confused the troopers until he was out of sight, and once behind the scrub, he galloped off. The British then realized their mistake and gave chase. Rates began to fire alarm shots to arouse the commando, which had already saddled up, and as he joined, their defensive shots drove the troopers back. Commandant Bouvet continued to lead the rake section in spite of the bullet wound in his thigh and they remained in place, allowing Smuts and the rest of the commander to escape. It was then that they noticed in the gloom of dusk that there were now hundreds of British soldiers moving through the desert scrub towards them. In a few moments, shells were screaming overhead. The British had brought artillery with them. Darkness settled in, saving the rake section. Somehow, at this point, Raits became separated from his fellow Reich section Boers and had to endure moments of terror as he passed through the British troops. Many, though, thought he was a fellow soldier because he still wore the English uniform, the khaki. It was the next day he made contact with the Reich section, and all were then shocked when they received the news about four of their comrades who had been shot as spies after being caught wearing British uniforms. We were thunderstruck, he says. The inhabitants of the districts through which we had passed could not have known of the death penalty, or they would surely have mentioned it to us. Now they knew. A Dutch farmer called Leroux explained that four of Smuts's men who had been captured the previous day had already been executed for wearing British army uniforms. They also learned of other Boers who'd been shot as spies and read newspapers finally listing all the names. Many were men that rates had recently been riding with, and he was shaken. But lucky for him, still alive. It was the killing of Captain Watson by Smuts' commander that had really angered the British, and they began to circulate more stories about the executions. Captain Watson had been shot by two of Smuts's men when he mistook them for British soldiers a few days before. Worse, the two Boers had hauled out English revolvers from English army holsters and shot Watson down with British bullets as he sat on his horse and thus secured for themselves and their colleagues a deadly certainty that from now on any British officer who may have previously vacillated would now not hesitate to give the order to carry out an execution. Rates then hurriedly changed from the British uniform he had been so happy to wear for more than a month into a coat and other civilian clothes he scrounged from La Rue. The Rake section was still some distance behind Smuts, and there were several English columns between them now. La Rue said Smuts mentioned he was on his way to the Swartbergen, a great range whose peaks they had spotted during the day, looming about sixty miles away to the south. However, the going would be extremely slow as they tried to rejoin Smuts, and many close shaves awaited the rake section as they struggled on. Well, while they struggled through cacti, desert plains, and changeable weather, we need to turn our attention to Sarah Ral. She was known as the lady who fought. She was a hero amongst her own people, but notorious amongst the British. She was unwittingly caught up in the war in the sweeping vortex that unfolded across the felt. As editor Anne Emsley writes in the foreword to the book published for the first time in English in 2000 about Raul's life, she was a woman who assumed the right to fight like a man for what she held precious. She defied conventional gender roles. Captain Reed, who was entrusted with her interrogation, later coined her pseudonym the lady who fought. Raal became radicalized during the guerrilla phase of the Boer War, as you'll hear. And if Sarah Raal broke the rules of deportment of women at the time, the British were breaking the rules of warfare. You see, they'd begun targeting women and children and sending them to the concentration camps where they were dying in large numbers. It was this that led Raoul to decide to fight rather than surrender. She was born on the family farm of Fontaine, or Olive Spring in the southern Free State, in the middle of what she called the Endless Plains. Her four brothers were called up to fight in 1899, then her father. Only her mother, sister and youngest brother remained on the farm, but her father returned after three months. He was suffering from an illness. When the English arrived in 1900, they plundered the family livestock and looted the farmhouse and then arrested her father, dragging him away. Later, Boer commandos passed by, and her mother was given a pass by the British to collect provisions. Then she left for nearby Jachisfontaine with Sarah's brother and sister. Little did Sarah know, they had been seized and sent off to a concentration camp shortly afterwards. Sarah was now alone on the Olivenfontein farm, surrounded by British troops and had no protection except for a black foreman she called Sam, a worker called Pete and a domestic worker called Trin, as well as her own skills with a rifle and a revolver. There were 3,000 sheep and cattle on the farm and a trunk in her father's room with 500 pounds hidden away. Eighteen pounds were in gold, and this I worked into a linen band which I tied around my hat and covered with a black band, she writes in her memoir published in 1936 in Afrikaans. The rest, about five hundred pounds in notes, I sewed into the hem of one of my dresses and kept six pounds in my purse. With her hat and dress on, she could move about without anyone discovering what in those days was a fortune on her. A month passed, and still there was no sign of her mother or family. Her domestic worker, Trin called out one morning, Clay Nui, quick, you must get up. Horsemen are approaching. It looks like the English. She was right. In a flash, Sarah was up, her gold-bearing hat on her head and wearing her expensive dress. A British column rolled up, and the commanding officer approached, he told Sarah that her mother and her siblings were arrested for aiding and abetting the Boers and were in a concentration camp. His men took what they could, but left her and Trin and Sam and Pete and rode away. The money was safe. You can imagine the scene. A Boer woman young marooned on her farm, her entire family missing. Her brothers fighting maybe dead. Mother and siblings disappeared. Many more months passed. By now it was mid-1901. She was managing the farm alone, but living in dread. It was then that her four brothers arrived out of the blue. The poor boys, will I ever forget the sight of them that day? Tanned, emaciated, weather-beaten, neglected, she writes. It was the phase of the war where the Boers had run out of material. the phase that almost cost Denise his life as he paraded about in a British Lancer's uniform before wising up to the Kitchener's spy proclamation. But her brothers only stayed a few hours. Then they left the farm taking Sarah with them to another farm an hour's ride right away. Of course, the British returned to Olivenfontein a day later and once more ransacked the farm but found nothing. And when they returned to their base... Sarah returned to her farm. Sam and Trin had managed to convince the British that Sarah was out of the area. They remained resolute that they would not work with the British, but other farm workers had left, and some were now spying on the farm for the British. The end was rapidly approaching, says Sarah Ryle. She then received a letter from the English commander at nearby Edinburgh town, demanding she turn herself in with all her livestock. It was to be the concentration camp for her. The letter gave me a terrible fright, she says, and brought home in no uncertain terms the realisation I would have to get going immediately before I could be captured on the farm. She packed a wagon and what is known as a spider, a horse-drawn cart. She managed to secure oxen from a neighbour and then was off along with Sam, Trin, and Pete. Sam was put in charge of the 2,000 sheep, which they were determined the British would not have. It was also a useful bargaining chip. They made it to a place called Boom Place after about a month of trekking, accompanied by the farm dog called Nero and the revolver my brothers had given me, she says. It was here that finally her luck ran out. After a number of run-ins with the British, she was thrown into the Springfontein concentration camp after being accused, accurately of course, of aiding and abetting the Boer commanders. Sam, Trin, and Pete were carted off to a concentration camp for blacks and the sheep were confiscated along with the vehicles. Being Sarah Rather, though, she was planning her escape from Springfontein even before she arrived. After a few weeks, the British thought she was a passive prisoner and Sarah secured a pass allowing her out of the concentration camp in order to go to a nearby wood to cut down trees for kindling. I can't describe the anxious moments I experienced when we began walking through the camp, she says. My heart was beating in my throat. Guards at the main gate scrutinized her pass and then warned her and two other Boer women that they should avoid the highland nearby because Boers were lurking. Then she was free. No sooner were we over the rise than we threw away our sacks and axes and ran towards the ridge where the Boers were supposed to be. As if by a miracle, a Boer commander appeared over the top of the ridge. By now the English were aware that the three Boer women were up to something and an armed unit rode out of the camp. The Boer commander opened fire and the unit leapt from their horses giving the women and their protectors time to thunder off into the distance. She was free. Word travels fast, even in the days before the internet. It was some time later that Sarah arrived in Toventain and was greeted there by her four brothers. Their surprise at seeing us was something to behold. They were shaving when we arrived, and with their faces still covered with shaving foam, they stampeded towards us. Sarah now made the momentous decision to join the commando and ride into war with her brothers. The Boer Commandant Nivot was in charge of the burghers under the leadership of General Herzog. Remember, he had led a number of invasions into the Cape and it was preordained that Sarah Raal would try and be part of these invasions. But we must halt right now. Next week we'll hear a lot more about Sarah and her amazing story. Please rate the podcast on iTunes and write a review if you have time. You can send me an email through the website abwarpodcast.com or direct message me on Twitter at deslatham. And to Samuel, well, thanks so much again for your donations. I'm hoping to use to store this series on SoundCloud for many years so that it's accessible and searchable. So until next week, goodbye. Oh, bring me terug naar jou Transvaal, daar waar my Sari woont, daar onder die mild is bij die groen, door een boom, daar woon my Sari Mare, daar onder die mild is bij die groen.